um, in the city. Um, and as, uh, as Neil and David explained, uh, that the new campus is a hugely important new investment for the university. Um, and they were very clear from the beginning um, uh, with, with the team from Atkins that this was very much about the focus um, on quality from the beginning. Um, that learning the lessons from the Cole report, from the Hackett report, that the golden thread was going to be something that was going you know, to be properly implemented on this series of projects. Um, and you know, from the, uh, the, the minutiae of every individual detail to also how do we deal with it, how do we make sure that the mindset is correct from the beginning to make sure that everybody is buying into that. So that began with a set of design standards um, and that's to be able to have the same baseline. So following on from obviously the detail of the human-centered design, um, that was the, um, the, the, the human brief, shall we say, for the buildings. Um, but this was very much about the practicalities, about making sure that everybody was running from the same baseline, that we were aware of you know, the, the end game of what we were trying to achieve and ensure that everybody knew um, that, that there was the same high level that everybody was going to be held to. Similarly, um, the, the, the lesson from the Hackett report, the idea of the quality tracker and being able to make it very overt that people were going to sign up to this and it was going to be a process which was um, audited and auditable and making sure that it was put at the centre of all the design decision making, that people were aware that the questions were going to be asked um, and there had to be an answer before the, next, before the gateway was, was uh, being able to be passed. So that was, that was at a project level. Um, and then in terms of the, the, the bigger picture of how the rest of the university signed into it, there was a very clear uh, sign-off between gateways um, to ensure that at each stage and for every change that was made, um, that it went through an audit process from everybody from maintenance and access to IT and fire, um, that it wasn't, oh, I didn't know about that change, or I didn't input into that. Because a lot of that is about controlling that change, controlling that data, good project management, good process management, but also with that emphasis on quality. And um, the university put in place um, technical guardians, essentially, for the stage three and four review. We were audited by others, Atkins were audited by others, and we audited the other uh, teams, the other design teams um, who were uh, designing the other buildings. Um, and that was an important process to make sure that there wasn't that loss of continuity between the design intent at the beginning and what was being handed over to the contractors. And then once we started on site, um, again, the NEC supervisor role, we carried out for other projects, um, other teams carried out for us, the university put in Clark of Works team, and very much that focus of it is, it is our collective responsibility. We're not going to let this slip through the net, we're going to make sure that that carries through. So in terms of making sure that there is a con continuity, once handover, once stage six has happened, what does that mean for stage seven? I think one of the things that we're acutely aware of is this kind of cliff edge of we're handing this, this virtual data pack to the client. And if they don't have the knowledge, the capability, the awareness, um, I mean, University of Glasgow is a sophisticated client and there is, there is probably more data than they can ever handle. So how do we distill it into something useful? And I think the opportunity to step back and say, it's okay to look at it through different lenses. It's okay to simplify to an extent where it makes sense for us to make decisions from it. This is a, a visualizer, nothing to do with, uh, with Glasgow. This is University of Plymouth. They were struggling to be able to visualize their space utilization. They had all their buildings in uh, DWG and they had the, 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 the most extensive spreadsheet I think I've ever seen in terms of you know, how that was, was all being used. But they couldn't use it because you know, if you've got thousands of rows in an Excel spreadsheet, it's very difficult to do. So we built this for them. This isn't Revit, this is just a very simple, um, it, it uses um, essentially a visualization tool where we brought that in, we added the data to it, and this is a, essentially a very simple digital twin. But this was exactly what they needed to be able to make the decisions um, for their assets, for their um, estate, to be able to say, okay, right, that's the one that's being used least at the moment. And the conversation that we're having with them at the moment is how do we add other layers of data 
for example, how do we add, you know, um, uh, the building condition or utilities use or whatever, because if it's a red in utilisation and it's a red in, you know, condition and utilities, right, that's our problem building, that's the one we've got to focus on. So using this as an example to say, don't try and boil the ocean, don't try and solve everything at that stage, but break it down to a level that's actually going to be manageable, useful, understandable for the custodians of, of that estate to be able to say, how do we make the incremental best decisions? And as we move forward into stage seven in use and the carbon journey that we are all on, how do we make the decisions essentially incrementally as the, as the projects move along? So visualization of sensor data this was something that we did for um, for a client down in um, in exeter um, actually put some they, they were struggling to understand why the building wasn't behaving the way they thought so we put some sensors very simple sensors um, within the building and we were able to add that layer of detail um, which they didn't have before and then it's not a means to an end um, sorry, it's, it is a means to an end, it's not an end in itself to be able to make the decisions and I think as, as the tool sets become more powerful as we move forward we're going to need this level of data over the next 10-15 years to be able to hit the carbon targets that we, we all know about but we need to simplify in a way that we can make those incremental changes and we can help our clients do that. And essentially that's the golden thread from everything that, that Neil and David were talking about at the beginning, from the aspirations and how we're going to make it better, right through to how do we make those decisions once we're already on the ground, it's already constructed, so we can continue to go on the journey that we all need to go on together. Thank you. Thank you, Helen. That's really interesting, and uh, your mind boggles the amount of data in there for each building. I've seen it myself, and uh, I think some questions myself to ask on this one, but uh, really interesting. And it just segues really quite nicely into uh, our final speaker, Becky Haywood from Borough Happold, uh, on uh, digital representation of uh, buildings and how buildings behave and how people behave within buildings, I think, is this about. So, Becky, um, over to you now for finals. Thank you very much. I hope everyone can hear me and thanks for that introduction and thanks to my other speakers and to you for your time this morning. Um, I'm Becky Hayward, I'm in the analytics team at Bureau Happold. I'm going to give a quick whiz through on our analytics approach to campus reopening and what's next around the corner. Um, I'll start by explaining uh, what we, how we use our analytics approach generally before COVID and what the outcomes were. So, we focus on using um, data analytics and predictive modeling to improve outcomes in lots of different sectors. So how do we drive um, footfall through airports or increase engagement in museums or um, improve the um, space use efficiency and learning effectiveness in schools and universities? So typically on a university project, for example, for a, a new build, we would work with the design team to um, carry out some day-in-life predictive modelling to show that space in operation um, and make sure it's going to work for the, um, the people that are going to use it. So, you know, often during that peak lecture change over time, making sure there's a sufficient space for students to move around between classes and avoid congestion. Similarly, in schools, um, so this is Curry High School um, in Edinburgh, uh, using that predictive modelling approach to work with the architects to, um, and with the schools themselves to test different scenarios um, and inform, you know, is the design going to work at that peak lunchtime? Which doors do you need to have open to let students in and out of the building? Um, and does it actually work for the, the timetable? Um, it also works at the um, you know, operational level as well. So this was a school that opened um, without our input um, originally. Um, and you can see it was quite congested when it first opened. Um, so we built a, a model of that school um, and tested simple operational interventions to see how we could alleviate that congestion. Um, and actually the intervention here was really simple. It was just to take away the school bell that goes off in between classes. And the impact that this has is just to spread the number of students moving at any one minute 
um, over a slightly longer period. And you can see this was the before case. And if it's possible for me to flick to the end of the video, um, you'll see that in the after case, it was much um, alleviated. Now, the modeling gave us that digital environment to be able to test those interventions before implementing them in the school um, and give everyone the confidence that they were going to work um, and therefore to implement them. So you can see there at the end the much more free flow movement. Moving on from that, there's also it's not just about congestion. Um, it's also about how do you promote, um, as uh, uh, David was saying, how do you promote those spontaneous interactions between people that we know drive collaboration and innovation. So we've been adapting the tool to actually look, you know, mapping people's um, daily activities and creating these heat maps of where the potential for interaction is um, in our buildings and being able to then test and compare different options um, and give feedback on you know, which layout is actually going to promote the most interactions um, that we know lead to those collaborations. Obviously, all of this had to change um, in the last uh, 18 months. So I'm sure everyone was familiar with all the headlines that were coming out for universities. You know, how do they plan their reopening um, with social distancing so that we can get people on campus safely? Um, we had to adapt our modeling approach um, pretty quickly to actually say, you know, look, we need to work out capacities of, of teaching spaces, how people are going to move around safely, um, and also test different um, uh, scenarios as well. Um, so I'll quickly go through our um, methodology. Obviously, there's a lot of considerations that went into the COVID reopening, right from economic analysis, um, air quality, um, what policies um, and rules are going to apply. Our focus was really on the space planning and people movement element of things, um, but it did require all this holistic input um, from all of these different areas. Um, this is quite a complex slide, so don't worry about reading all of it, but generally this was our approach. We start by looking at the static capacity of the spaces um, and move on to um, the temporal capacity, um, including the scheduling and the timetabling. Use that to build up predictive models of the campus flow and um, building flow. And um, those models help us understand where the pinch points um, are likely to be and where we need additional um, interventions, um, such as one-way routing um, or um, signage and, and so on. Um, apologies. Um, but there's also an important feedback loop. So once it was operational, we had to monitor what's happening and feedback into the ongoing plan to be able to adapt and respond. Um, so the real challenge here was actually that um, it does involve a lot of different stakeholders within each um, university that we worked with. Um, so clearly, obviously, the space planning, timetabling, um, and estates, um, but also you know the transport, um, health and safety, um, even the cleaning and the library. All of these um, different teams had to be involved, um, and there was also really fragmented data sets um, and tools across the different universities um, around timetabling, what floor plans they had, did they have details of the actual furniture within the rooms that we could use. Um, uh, and so agility was really important and this was over the summer of uh, 2020 and September at the time was just around the corner so we needed to work at a pace. Um, so what did we do? So we started off by looking at the capacity of the spaces. So we built a script that where we could take the detailed layouts of some typical um, learning spaces, so laboratories or a traditional lecture theater, seminar rooms, um, and actually optimize the capacity, the spacing of the seating in those rooms. Um, that allowed us for the universities which didn't have those detailed layouts, we could actually make high level approximations of um, what those capacities could be in their lecture theaters and, and teaching spaces. So this gives us an overall idea of the capacity on the campus. Um, so for example, in, in this university, um, we've got like their um, normal um, capacity on the left, um, and then we can see that actually at the um, reduced social distancing um, at a one meter distance, it's reduced down to about 25% of, of pre-COVID levels. Um, we're able to build that information into um, a campus um, 
uh, dashboard, so similar to as um, Helen was shown in, in uh, her presentation. Um, this allows us to click on each building and see what the capacity of that building is um, and also visualize other attributes like which departments are in that building. And it also allowed us to do some additional analysis such as um, you know, what happens if we have to switch from one meter distancing to two meter distancing? Because over that summer, there was a lot of changing about what the rules and regulations were gonna be, um, which made it quite difficult to plan for. Um, and also allowed us to test out different scheduling um, parameters. So what happens if we change from one hour classes to two hour classes? What is the actual um, daily capacity of students that we can have on campus? So that's more like the static analysis and, and visualizations. We then build that into a dynamic campus flow model, um, which allows us to see where students and, and staff are moving through the campus on any given day with those reduced capacities and identify where the potential pinch points and issues might be. So doing analysis on those, taking into account the path widths um, and space available and identify where the issues might arise. That also applied at the building scale as well. Um, I hope this video works. Um, so being able to model that lecture change over period as, as students are moving between classes um, and uh, with the reduced capacities, but being able to identify where the um, potential hotspots for um, congestion might be that might need further interventions. So modeling was great, highlighted where we might need interventions. What are we talking about? Um, well, there's a whole range of different things, and again, it needed this holistic approach. We needed to take into account constraints of the different universities. Um, some of them were newer than others, so the older universities had a lot of, um, you know, sort of narrow old um, buildings that we needed to um, take into account. But the sorts of things that we were looking at were scheduling and timetabling, um, management of flows, um, the signage and floor markings, um, as well as um, how to arrange the public transport um, uh, to and away um, from campus. Um, the timetabling was one of the most challenging um, aspects, I would say. Um, it's obviously um, quite a beast to actually get into the timetabling and, and adjust that. So we looked, we tried to look for simpler things that didn't mean we needed to actually shift the scheduling of, of classes around, but um, wholesale. So for example, look, looking at um, staggering the start time of classes, maybe offsetting so that half your classes start on the hour and the other half start at half past. Um, but one of the simplest ones was just to extend the changeover period from um, 10 minutes to 15 minutes so that you just had slightly longer for students to empty out of the classes and move to their next class. And this has the same effect as that school bell example I showed earlier, so it just um, diffuses the flow a little bit. As well as being able to visualize and test some of these interventions, um, so you can see here the impact of sort of unmanaged spaces versus managed spaces with one-way flows. When the circles intersect, they turn red. Um, so there's a brief um, encounter happening there. So the tool was actually really helpful just to be able to communicate the potential benefits of um, some of these strategies um, so that the um, teams at the universities could take that informed decision about where they wanted to implement these um, interventions, both at the building scale, um, so again, marking up seating and um, where the signage and one-way routes needed to be, but also at the campus scale, so using this campus flow modeling to understand how many people per minute are we likely to be having moving in each direction, and therefore, where do we need to have our sort of marked up queue spaces? Um, where can we put some outdoor seating areas so that people can wait before classes? Um, as well as these marquees that went up on campuses um, so that students could um, you know, wait in between classes and even actually host some social events in the evenings, which was really important. So the outcomes of this work, um, so we worked with a number of universities. Um, so it was important to assist them in planning those interventions. Um, it gave them the confidence that in their timetabling um, and reassurance that you know, they had the plans in place. It did allow them to increase the capacity, um, opposed to just using rules of thumb. Actually, our analysis did allow the universities to actually get more students on campus than they originally thought. Um, and it did require this holistic approach, so lots of input from different departments um, and not just working with one um, um, department. And I think overall it gave people this sense of relief. You could visualize it and see what was going to happen, talk about where the issues were going to be um, and come up with plans to resolve those. 
so that's all fine, but what happens next? Um, so what we actually found was that um, a lot of the universities, um, they came back and they were very happy with what had happened. You know, the campus felt safe. Um, you know, there was good social distancing happening, but it felt a bit dead and a bit like a crime scene because there was lots of red tape everywhere. So the next challenge was how do we actually bring life back to campus? So we held a series of workshops with the universities to um, you know, get their feedback, um, you know, interactive whiteboard sessions about how they want to use spaces, um, you know, particularly also with a focus on staff and not just students, so hybrid working models, what types of space they need and what types of furniture and so on that might support that. So really getting that subjective feedback was, was really important. But we also need to understand how spaces are actually used and what the quality of those environments um, is like. So this is actually an interactive platform that we created a few years ago. Um, it's called SmartViz. This um, is a live office. It's one of Vodafone's offices in London. Um, and it's got sensors um, monitoring the conditions of the space. So it's got the... Um, air quality, noise, temperature, light levels, but it's also got infrared sensors that monitor where people are. It's all anonymous because it's just infrared, but it tells you where the people are. So you can overlay these and look for patterns and understand how are people using space and how does it correlate with um, the quality of that environment. Um, and it, was, it does provide some really useful insights. So for example, this um, showed us that a third of people's time was actually spent in spaces um, with um, too high CO2 levels, for example. So that fed back into the management of the building. Um, and it also highlighted that a lot of meeting rooms were really poorly utilized. Um, so that's feeding back into their onward space planning. So what we're trying to get to is this network of data sets. So including the um, non-sensor data, so energy use, BMS data, the um, timetabling systems, um, as well as all these um, sensors, um, desk occupancy, people counting sensors, um, the window sensors that tell us whether the window's open or shut, um, as well as those environmental sensors. Um, plugging all of this in to actually build up a digital twin um, of um, school operations. So we're currently piloting this with, um, as part of a CivTech challenge um, with our sponsors from Scottish Futures Trust and um, Midlothian. Um, and we're piloting this with Laswade um, High School. Um, to build up this operational dashboard to help understand the um, performance of those spaces. But it really requires this holistic approach. We can't look at one element in isolation, so it's no use just to look at the CO2 sensors. We need to overlay that with the timetabling, um, the noise level, so that we can get a picture of the performance of those spaces and start to infer some really useful, powerful insights about um, how, how those spaces are being used and how effective they are as, as a learning um, environment. So overall, the aim for this um, SmartViz for, for schools that we're working on um, is to be able to provide this um, full platform that allows us to monitor and analyze what's happening from that holistic approach, so the sensor data, non-sensor data, allow us to simulate um, different scenarios, so test what happens if we change the timetable or stagger the classes, um, and carry out that scenario planning to opt optimize what's happening. Um, and it's an onward cycle, so we then go back and monitor um, and continuously um, review what's happening and, and improve um, the performance of, of the assets. So I hope that's given you a um, useful overview of um, our approach to using data analytics and predictive modeling um, to support the design and operations um, of our schools and universities. And I just want to say thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much, Becky. Really, really interesting. Um, and before we open up to some questions, my, my takeaway from this morning uh, has sort of reminded me that digital uh, is an enabler. It's behind the scenes, and that's where it should lay. And actually, we started with the human-centered approach, and we sort of ended with the human approach, i.e., how do we and our students and young people study, work, uh, live and research and play in our campuses and on our schools. And this has all been about how tools to enable, to simplify a really complex places and to make them more efficient, healthier, and of course safer places. But that relies on 
us as individuals doing the reactions and hopefully these digital things will provide those tools. So I, I, it, it's really quite, and I think we had a discussion before today um, and we all agreed, I think, that we'd be very open to any other, you know, broader questions around what does digital mean for the estates and the fundamentals of states in the future. So uh, with that, and if there's any specific questions to any speaker, if you wouldn't mind just stepping forward, there's one at the back, but probably not need for that. There's a mic here. You don't need to touch it, so it's COVID safe. Um, just could you give your name as well, uh, and if you want your organization, just to give it for a record and uh, open it to the floor, if anyone's got any points or issues they'd like to raise. Remember to take the mask off this time. Um, yes, to anyone on the panel, really, just your reflections on the enabling capacity of digital to embed these low carbon aspects into buildings. And then also the other way around. By embedding the low carbon aspects, you know, you can bring on sensors, you can bring on energy efficiency. And so um, it's such a rich seam, I think, the interaction between the two. And I was especially impressed with the internal environmental quality aspects because there's a big debate now around low carbon on co-benefits so I'd be quite interested to hear about the low carbon aspects of uh, that institute as well. Sorry that was quite a lot in there but <laughs> do you want to take me on with any of those points? Thanks Hazel. Um, it was an interesting journey we went on with the institute because we started talking a lot about natural ventilation, natural ventilation, we'll use natural ventilation, we'll optimise natural ventilation. I was in a session one day and someone took up their hand and they said, what does that actually mean? And we're in an old townhouse, I said, it just means you can open your window. Is that it? Is that all it means? He says, yes, that's all it means. But it means we need to uh, make sure we're not more than seven metres away, we need to do, uh, make sure you can open and close it as you wish, it's not, there's not an overriding control over it. Uh, there are you all need to all agree on the temperature of the room, whether the window opens more or not. So it's, they were quite amazed at how unsophisticated it was. Here we're spending 40, 50 million pounds on a new building and it was as simple as we were saving. It was going to be an actually ventilated building. The atrium was going to do its thing. It was going to provide stack ventilation and draw warm air up and, and pull the cold air through the windows. But they were amazed at how, how simple it was. And you, and you forget sometimes that uh, uh, if they're not involved in a building and design process, how these terms and phrases kind of pass them by until you realise they realise it's realised for them. Um, so that was a really interesting aspect of it. And the other thing that the institute, I think we touched on it, because the healthcare researchers they, they they were totally on board with what we were doing, and when we actually they had this notion about we wanted the building to be full of collaboration, but didn't really know. I didn't really know what the spaces were going to be or what that meant for them. But through the digital design tool, we started to articulate what the people were doing in the spaces. It helped them as well to appreciate that um, something that we might call a meeting room was actually a project room for them. They might, a group of them might spend a week in it. A touchdown space for some people meant a coffee table, but for some people it meant a high chair. For some people it meant one of these you know, booths with an AV screen on it. So once we started articulating all these spaces and aligned it to the if you like the characters or the profiles that come out of human centred design they were able to see and visualise and engage with the project a lot more and hopefully once it's built they'll completely engage with the project. Yes. Sorry, can I just add to that? No. Sorry, sorry. I was just, Becky, sorry, yeah. I was just going to Helen, add yes. a, a second part to that. Yeah. Sorry if I may just very quickly. Um, I think as David says, the, the thing to, to remember is there is a risk of, of having so much data that we don't know what to do about it. And you know, remembering that it's not the end in itself. There's always going to be a purpose to why we're using that data. And sometimes stepping back and keeping it simple and, and visualizing it in a way, as Becky was saying, you know, visualizing it in a way that actually makes it accessible and then can, can actually have some uh, some future purpose for decision making is the important thing. So the data, we, we, we are awash with data and actually remembering how to filter that and stepping back from the complexity is the only way that we're going to be able to use it to, to, to be able to go on that journey, particularly with the carbon intent that we all have. Thank you. Yes. Good morning, Andy Hall from Murray Council. 
you really touched on one of my points there, that we talk a lot about data, and it's not data, it's information, and it's knowledge for information we need. And it's really, 15 years ago at Cranfield University, when I was doing my MSc course, we talked about knowledge management, and we've almost forgotten that. And actually, that's key. And, and the reason I mentioned knowledge management is that I'm, I looked at one of your slides there, saw lots of the OEM manuals. That's my real-life situation. So my question is, is sort of two, two things. One is the migration task, to take it from that sort of document-type information to digitizing the estate. What's the effort required? Importantly as well, the cost of that, because when I'm making the case to my elected members, I have to see the return on investment, and it's not an insignificant initial capital cost, but the idea is how do I look at this as a whole life saving and coming back to that whole, whole, whole concept piece. And I'll just give you a bit of a background. My background is military. 20 years ago, we talked about digitize the battle space, which is exactly what you've talked about there. But you've always got to remember the common denominator in that was the infantryman that was sitting there with a rifle with very limited connectivity and also training. And we have that issue as well, that we have to also look at our workforce as well, because the people that are doing the facilities management are traditional janitors. We still call them janitors. The buildings of the future, they're not going to be janitors. They're going to be proper facilities managers, and we need to make sure they're trained and they're experienced in the use of these tools. So there's a whole sort of key elements of delivering this. So I really love that, and I think it's really great, but it's the roadmap to get there and the cost and time to achieve it. Thank you. So, to, I mean, this, this could be a conversation that would last all day, and I'd be delighted to sit with you for, for longer to do that. But I think it's, um, it's understanding where you're going to get the major gains and understanding that talking to people on the ground, and that's why the soft landings part is so important in a new build, is to make sure that we have that understanding of, you know, the, the, the cause and effect. There's no point in dwelling on something which is going to have a, you know, a micro uh, impact on it. Um, I think your point about you know who's really on the ground is is hugely important, and that uh, that in our experience is changing. It's changing quicker in um, uh, HE and FE perhaps than in schools. I think in schools we still have a very traditional base, and actually remembering that the the, the best gains you're going to get are by the simple moves. You know, to making sure that people understand. Um, if there is a, a, a BMS system in place, for example, understanding if, you know, if the night purging needs to take place, you know, all of those things that actually it's written in a way that it's, you know, if it's not on two sides of A4, it's too long. You've got to be able to have it in, a, in an environment that's simple and, and not always to, to build a, a, a fancy script. I mean, we're all, as, as, as designers and engineers, you know, we're all at risk of, oh, we'll, we'll create a solution for that. Actually, sometimes that communication in the early... Um, dialogue is the most important thing that's where you're going to get the best gains I think in terms of translating um, existing O&Ms that's a real challenge so for buildings which are either in the process or, or have been used or perhaps even refurbed you know five ten years ago that's the real danger spot because we haven't moved on quickly enough and I would say at the moment it, you're not going to get the gains to do the whole you know, to digitize the whole thing. So focusing again on the things that are giving you maximum gain um, and then do that incrementally as we make it, um, you know, as we make it simpler to do that. But again, bearing in mind the people who are going to use it. So I would say we have to be much more discerning um, and, you know, understand the, uh, it's not just about financial value, it's simplicity and usability value um, and making sure that people are engaged with that process with us, what will help us. I mean, do you have anything to, to add to that? Um, I think I it think is on, it's all right. It is on, okay, great, <laughs> thanks. Um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right, you know, and I think uh, what we're trying to do is also make those tools that we're developing as user-friendly as possible, um, because we do, yeah, we understand, you know, we all come from different backgrounds and, you know, their focus is on the operations on the ground. It's not on being a, you know, techie digital whiz or anything. So we... we aim to make those tools really user-friendly, click and play, um, and you know, take away the, um, the challenges there. Um, and it's, it's an ongoing process. You know, it's, it's gonna take some trial and improvement, I think, to, to get there. And we need to get feedback from the end users on you know, what's useful to them, what's not useful to them. And as you said, like, you know, look for where the major gains are and, and invest the time there and not worry too much about some of the other details. Um, so it's, a, it's definitely a work in progress, um, 
but you know hopefully it's you know it's a really good start um, in that direction yes yeah yeah thank you thank you Andy that's a good question uh, any other thoughts or questions from the floor thank you I have a, a I'm Sarah um, and I work at Nordan um, Windows at the moment, but I've got a background in smoke and natural ventilation. Um, and one of my bugbears is the fact that we can offer such amazing technology to enhance and, and, and make safe an indoor environment, but then we do it far back in a process and the end users of the buildings, not just the, the building manager, the, the kids in schools or the, the teachers in a classroom don't know how that system really benefits them. And as we go forward and try and make buildings better in terms of their carbon usage, um, energy consumption, it's all very well doing it at the start, but if you have windows of passive house U-value um, and a teacher who just opens them when they get too hot that to me doesn't all link in and I was wondering if there's any plans to involve industries and architects in collaborating with the end users to ensure that that building is, is aerated for 10 years because people understand how it works and what the benefits are if it's used properly or used, not just used properly but used to benefit them Thank you, Sarah. That's a really good point. And I think it goes to the heart of Helen's, uh, the, or the end point of the golden thread you talked about, Helen. But any, any you want to add to comments on this point, specifically about building users and maybe in schools in particular and colleges? Oh. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, that is the, the challenge with education settings. Sorry, can you hear me? Use the other mic. Try that one. Yeah, Try that one. There we go. Thank you. Yeah, the challenge with education settings is, of course, the students move on. The students continue to change. Um, the, 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 the team who are look after the, looking after the building, whether it be janitors or FM team, um, are, are often the most consistent um, in the project. And that's why making sure that the, that the soft landings isn't just a buzzword, isn't just, oh, yeah, we're going to tick that box. It's truly understanding. And, you know, like I said earlier, if it's more than two sides of A4, you're not going to understand it. And uh, we had a school, this was before I joined Atkins, I hasn't tried, um, that where the handover had been so poor that we had the head teacher almost in tears because her, uh, her staff didn't understand the nature of how, how the building had been set up and therefore the, the, the mechanics that needed to be done to look after it. They weren't complex. And actually, it was to do with the night purge, essentially. Um, they weren't complex, and actually, it just needed that kind of quick half-hour conversation. But for various reasons, that hadn't happened. And that's a classic example where the golden thread has just broken. Um, but it's also got to be simple enough to be able to transfer that to the next person. So it's not, you know, so they don't have to read your, <laughs> your kind of, you know, six-inch volume of, of O&Ms to be able to get to the bottom of that. And I think as we're becoming... You know, the age of the, the, the hugely technical and very sophisticated building um, is now being overtaken by the idea of, of sensors and being able to read it better, um, but actually to simplify it in a way that we can, we can all understand it. Um, and to be able to have, uh, you know, an induction for teachers, an induction for, you know, all the staff, students to an extent, but to keep it as simple as we possibly can, and then it's legible and usable. I'm not a big fan of high technology, it will break. Um, we need to, as you say, making sure that we're working across the whole construction industry from manufacturers, contractors, designers, engineers, architects, um, that, that we all understand that um, the simplicity of the outcome is what's going to lead us to the path that, that we need to be on. Do you want to add? Mm. Oh, you're absolutely right, Helen, and it's a good Good point, well made. Um, my own experience, my daughter's school is the teachers have a varying approach to how wide the windows are, if opened at all. Um, and it's getting actually ventilated classrooms and they get stuffy because they don't open the windows. And I made a flipping comment about the institute arguing about how far the windows go. And that, that is the reality. Um, 
and there definitely is a missing link of uh, buildings were were there for us, the lights come on, the ventilation was set at, temperature was set at, whatever. But actually now, with um, these types of buildings, it involves a bit of effort and a bit of interaction that I think you're absolutely right, there's a missing link between that handover at handover time for users to understand you need to do something. It's not all on a plate for you. You need to use the building in the way that it's designed and we need to get that across to them. Becky, do you have any comments on um, building users? Yeah, I think, um, like you say, it's that ongoing education and engagement with the end users, I think, is, is, is really important. I, I know from my experience, like going back to my office, um, We've got quite an old office, it's, um, you know, and it's really important to have all the windows open for ventilation, but it gets really cold, um, and everyone was getting annoyed and shutting the windows again, and our, estates, our facilities guy was coming around and opening them all. And eventually we had to just have a session where um, you know, it was an interactive session where we could talk about it, um, you know, they could explain to us the importance of it, um, and we could talk about our concerns and you know, how can we actually keep the office warm and comfortable. And it had to be this two-way um, engagement as well as having, um, you know, the sensors, the um, carbon dioxide sensors that were really simple to understand. It had a traffic light system, you wave your hand in front of it and it goes green if it's okay and it's red if it's not. And I think just having that engagement um, in a really simple to understand way um, is really important. And getting, you know, we talk about like getting the teachers involved, but also getting the, the students involved as well, you know, particularly in secondary school. Um, at Last Wade um, School, we actually met with a group of the architecture students who I think were really keen to actually, like, you know, contribute to this and talk about it. And, you know, and I think that that's got to be part of the ongoing um, discussion. But also putting the, um, the problem into, um, into the context of what they might care more about so you know I don't particularly care about the CO2 levels on on the face of it but once someone explains to me you know actually this is about COVID or about your concentration levels then I'm like okay fine now I understand so I think it's like putting it into that language of what what they're going to care most about um, so yeah that's what I'm going to add. Thank you very much yes one one final question yes hi at the back there. Uh, Alex Donaldson Scott Brownrigg um, I think I'm going to pick up on the point of, is it Andy? Yeah, um, we've, I suppose historically we're not compelled to really fund a lot of this work. It's more or less a question, it's a, a, a difficult one to answer, but who do we think should be funding a lot of these exercises up front? Uh, Post-occupation evaluation is a typical example um, we'd all love to be involved in it, but uh, you know, uh, it costs time and money to do it. Um, so, just a general comment, really. Who uh, do we think should be funding this drive towards net zero carbon? Can, Sorry. No, so can I can I can I add to that also around that just to help help the sort of panel to think about this answer in the sense that some of the models some are very complicated and do require very technical input in terms of technician, you know, dynamic simulation modeling, for example. However, is some of the modeling you've been talking about and you've been discussing there, and tools indeed, are these things that could be taken on by clients for themselves in terms of some, with some training, or is it something where digital computer, computer technology will go where, for example, a, a, man, a manager in a local authority looking at school designs could just download or have on the on the, on the internet, tools like you're talking about here today at some point in the future, so they could do it for themselves at very, very little cost. Is, is that where it's going? Or, so to help with the cost question, because I know it's a hard one to answer. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think that, yeah, that's a, a good way to, to put it. That is the direction we're heading, is um, to make the tools more accessible to the end users um, and to sort of simplify what we're doing. So the SmartViz platform we've developed is, is just a website basically for each um, client that we work with um, and um, we we have exposed some of the parameters in the modeling. So, for example, for, for some um, clients, we've been able to expose, you know, if it's a concert hall, like how many tickets are sold, and you can sort of change that on a slider bar and they can rerun the model and see the impact it has. Um, 
we're refining that as we go because it depends on the question being asked and obviously COVID has sort of changed everything in terms of um, importance but it is the the direction we want to go is to have some of those predictive models um, even down to um, you know being able to predict CO2 levels within classrooms and so on being able to have a simplified model that allows you to do some comparative analysis and then obviously when you get into sort of detailed design and stuff you do still need to run the full um, detailed modeling but it allows you to sort of do some of that scenario testing um, uh, the clients to do that themselves so yeah yeah thank you Helen anything on, on also in terms of the not maybe legislated but the require requirement for for example BIM and things like the modeling requirements uh, for future buildings as well I, I think there's um Part of the moral responsibility of the, uh, you know, the, the, the climate challenge, that you know, the carbon challenge that we're in, you know, I would use the Grenfell disaster as a kind of microcosm to, to, to explain that. You know, whilst the cost of the building is the bottom line, um, that is only going to take us one way. And some of those behaviours which, you know, culminated in, in that disaster are also writ large and a kind of much, you know, much more significant scale when we're talking about um, the, the carbon journey um, and climate change. And I think the opportunity that we have now um, is, is not only a, a moral obligation to, to, to make those changes, but also increasingly a legislative implication. Now that's being taken on at different levels between different local authorities and obviously at a national uh, you know, government scale. Um, I think that will change our decision-making process and therefore as a collaborative exercise it will fall to all of us. That may mean that the buildings do get more expensive because, because we can't just rely on, um, you know, driving it down to the, to the lowest common denominator because we won't hit those other targets, if we can use that as a, as a collaborative exercise to really understand what value means, value including carbon, then I think that will put us in a better place. Because if you think about, I mean, we've all seen that the, the cost comparators, the, the initial cost, um, and we, we used a lot of the, the initial research when we were putting together our human-centered design tools, um, was very much about the increased benefit, you know, for every you know, pound that you spent on the building to improve the well-being, it paid itself, you know, a hundred times over in the life of the building or more. Um, and I think we have to use that same metric when we're looking at carbon and using that to improve holistically. That means that we will all pay. Things will become more, um, basically more expensive because we have to factor in the, the responsibilities that we have and if we do that in the right way, then we can not only get the right carbon journey, but we can also improve for individuals and for the country and for the planet. That's, a, in some ways, that's a very glib way of putting it. But I think we all have to take responsibility and say, this is, we have to educate ourselves as, as, as individual um, uh, consultants, but also as clients and, and everybody else, to say it is not just about bottom dollar. It's about what is our investment. And that's a very hard thing to say when we've got basic need, you know, we've got to put, uh, you know, build the right number of school places. Um, but at the same time, to, to educate ourselves, educate our clients, to be able to see the bigger picture um, and ensure that that is being taken into account in all those decision-making aspects. I don't know if that goes anywhere Thank near. You. Thanks, Neil wants to make a brief comment, I think, on this. And then. Is this working, yeah? Um, so, if you look at Letty and you look at Reba 2030, it makes it quite clear the value of post-occupancy evaluation and recycling that information and basically overcoming the performance gap between what's predicted and the actual. But that's still a choice whether you as a client actually invest in doing that and recycle that knowledge. But obviously, with the Scottish Leap School programme, it's fundamentally a requirement that you demonstrate that you're predicted outcomes will actually be achieved because it's tied in with your funding. So now, I guess, stage seven is very important from that funding security point of view. And I guess that will drive changes in terms of skills of people to be able to enable that stage seven, because for most clients, it's a forgotten about stage. 
and truly drive that recycle and overcome that performance gap. So to answer your question, I think the funding will drive the requirement for a change in terms of skills and culture and that post-occupancy evaluation look will become probably quite critical in terms of overcoming and demonstrating that performance gap being narrowed. Thank you, Neil. So we, we're running out of time, but we've got time. One more, uh, one more question from Stephen here. Thanks, Stephen. This is slightly awkward because I'm going to look this way and, and this way, but um, just to pick up on Alex's question and also that, um, on that response, in terms of the, the LEAP projects um, in particular, as you rightly said there, whenever um, the, the funding was being looked at a couple of years ago, we tried to look at all of the things that would need to be done end to end so uh, to, to, to build up that cost. So already within that, there's the requirement for post-occupancy evaluation and for end to end um, information management plan and information managers. So that, that was all considered at the start and, and, is, and is built in. Um, and, and also uh, on-site quality, which people have talked about as well. There's, there was funding built in for that. And I suppose looking, looking forwards, you've talked a lot about the, the interaction between occupancy and CO2, uh, and, and government has just put um, 10 million into essentially flooding the country's classrooms with CO2 monitors to, to build data that we can then do something with in the future. So. I don't know, Alex, if, if that's any reassurance to you that these things are being thought about. Obviously, it's a continually moving uh, target. So if, if anybody from any angle feels that these things are not being considered, please come to us and, and wave a flag about what, need, what we need to look at in the future. Thank you. Thanks, Rufus. Alex, one, a very quick right to reply, that's it, and then I'm shutting down. Pretty much, <laughs> pretty much exactly the response. I love the value versus, you know, we shouldn't understand the cost of things, we should understand the value of things. And I do think that the, the whole process that we have to engage with now captures that. The information management and the resourcing of it is just wonderfully captured within that. Yeah. So, yes, exactly. Thank you very much. Thanks. So we're just going to draw close now just to say it's been a fascinating morning, um, fantastic uh, presentations from four speakers here, and we've learned a lot about the process of digital in the process of, of uh, building, designing, and indeed running our campuses. So uh, really a complex area put across really clearly, raised some interesting thoughts. So thank you very much for that to your speakers, and uh, thank you for taking part this morning and you'll see us around the show for the rest of the day today. Thank you very much, thank you.